welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobach. And we have the happy task of covering a short story this week. And a very fun one at that. An extremely fun one at that. Catherine, what are we covering? We're covering The Adventure of the Clapham Cook. And guess who is the star of this? Might it be our dear Monsieur Poirot? Well, I can tell from just the elation in your voice that we must be covering a Poirot for this episode. (laughs) It's what I can hear in my own voice when we're covering a Miss Marple. So I am happy to be living here in your happy place with you, Catherine, (laughs) for the next number of minutes. And um, I think a great place to start would be to talk a little bit about the publication history. What do you think? I think so. Go for it, Kemper. All right. The Adventure of the Clapham Cook. This is an early Agatha Christie short story. So, of course, it was first published in The Sketch. The Sketch. Oh, The Sketch. It's been a while. That was in November of 1923. And it was subsequently published in book form in the collection The Underdog and Other Stories in 1951. That was in the U.S. And then it was one of these early Poirot short stories that was actually not collected in the U.K. until all the way in September of 1974 in the collection Poirot's Early Cases. Although, interestingly, it was, though, published in a collection in the UK extremely early, in 1932, in fact, and that was in The Omnibus of Crime. But that is not an Agatha Christie collection, per se. It was a collection of a number of mystery stories from a variety of authors, I believe. And this was Agatha Christie's offering. Right. So we can just get right down to it. I mean, the victim here, it's a little bit of an odd one about the victim, but we're going to say that the victim is one Mrs. Todd because she's lost her very valuable cook. Now, Kemper, is there another victim? They're very well, maybe, you know, often in some of these more slight or frivolous seeming Christie short stories, I'll say, oh, you know, we're dealing with a jewel heist or a kidnapping or something like that. And there's no murder here. But I'm actually not making that caveat right now. Take that as you will, listeners. Perhaps there's mm-hmm. a little bit more going on in the story. Possibly so. Who might our suspects be? Well, our first suspect, our most obvious suspect, is the missing cook. <laughs> that would be right. Eliza Dunn, because she has disappeared and seemingly pulled a runner. We'll get into exactly what's happening here, but she seems to be implicated in her own disappearance somehow. Right. And again, are there other suspects? Possibly. But let's let's get there. Yeah, let's just get into it because it's a short story and we don't really have to belabor the point. No. So, the world as it appears to be. Our beloved Monsieur Poirot is busy contemplating his mustaches. Oh, and also there's a stain on his jacket. So that's also not good for him. And he doesn't have a current case. And Hastings, they're currently roommates at this moment. They're in the Holmes and Watson phase of their Mm -hmm. relationship. They are. And so while Poirot is, you know, looking at the stain, etc., Hastings is reading the paper because he keeps suggesting random um, stories that he's reading as possible crimes that Poirot could investigate. One of those is a bank clerk who absconded with 50,000 pounds worth of assets. And Poirot's basically like, sure. And also, uh, you know, dear Hastings, what about this stain on my jacket? I just like to point out that this is how so many of these early short stories start out. Poirot and Hastings kicking it in the morning. It's always like the late Mm -hmm. morning post-breakfast. And Hastings is just checking out the paper. And he gives a little laundry list of items that he's read out of the paper. And Poirot is fussing with something or other. There's a lightness to these early short stories that I just adore. Oh, absolutely. And they all kind of have a similar format, which we're going to find out in one second, because what happens next? So what happens next is that even though Poirot has all of these grand plans to remove that spot of grease from his new gray suit, there's also his winter overcoat that he must lay aside in the powder of Keating's. 
And the moment is ripe for the trimmings of my mustaches, and afterwards I must apply the pomade. So Poirot just has a lot to do. But unfortunately for him, a red-faced angry lady, Mrs. Todd, rings the bell. We're already getting the sense that she's not necessarily from, you know, the creme de la creme of society here. And she sort of insults Poirot's credentials because she says, you're not a bit like what I thought you'd be. The next words out of her mouth are, did you pay for the bit in the paper saying what a clever detective you were? Or did they put it in themselves? And Poirot draws himself up and says, madame. (laughs) Right. She's basically then like, "Um, I am coming here because I read about you in the paper and I need you to find my missing cook. And Poro's like, okay, there's an angry lady who's now insulted me to my face. Mm-hmm. And he is kind of just staring at her and says, Madame, I'm a private detective. And she's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Find my missing cook. He basically pulls a, do you know who I am? Hercule Poirot does not look for missing domestics. And this is probably the best part of the story, actually, because it's a great moment on both their parts, because Mrs. Todd, um, Christy writes, snorted with indignation. And she says, that's it. Is it, my fine fellow? Too proud, eh? Only deal with government secrets and countess's jewels. Let me tell you, a servant's every bit as important as a tiara to a woman in my position. We can't all be fine ladies going out in our motors with our diamonds and our pearls. A good cook's a good cook. And when you lose her, it's as much to you as her pearls are to some fine lady. And then Christy writes, for a moment or two, it appeared to be a toss up between Poirot's dignity and his sense of humor. Finally, he laughed and sat down again. And he, he completely may have And he says, you know what? He literally says, Madame, you are in the right and I am in the wrong. Your remarks are just and intelligent. This case will be a novelty. Never yet have I hunted a missing domestic, et cetera, et cetera. And, he's, and he says, You're, you make a good point that to right. you, this is important. And I was kind of being a snob. And this is part of the secret sauce as to why Poirot is such a beloved character. Because I think many people would assume that he would just, you know, remain snooty. And what's so charming about what he does in this is that he turns on a dime and just completely embraces Mrs. Todd after he dismissed her. Right. And also, what do I always get to say in this podcast? Never underestimate the help. Indeed. Kemper. And and this is like a very early example, but he, he gets it. He gets the point that she's making. It's a very simple setup. You know, this woman lives, Mrs. Todd lives with her husband, Mr. Todd. They have a lodger or a paying guest, which is the slightly more genteel way she refers to him, a Mr. Simpson. And along with this uh, cook who is no longer there, there is a housemaid, Annie. The only person who used to be on the premises who obviously is no longer there, it's the reason that Mrs. Todd has come to see Poirot is this cook, Eliza Dunn. Poirot and Hastings go to Clapham, hence the title of the short story. I had just recently come across Clapham as a London district in, wait for it, Pride and Prejudice, because I recently read a 700-page annotated version of Pride and Prejudice, which was one of my more enjoyable reading experiences during the pandemic, actually, because Pride and Prejudice is such great comfort reading, but then the copious annotations made it a deeper, more satisfying read. And um, Clapham is the part of London that Wickham and Lydia come to when they are flying away from Brighton to places unknown and they change their coach in Clapham uh, and, then they, and, Wickham. Ugh, and then they disappear into London and no one knows where they went so Clapham is actually the last place where they are seen and Mr. Bennett is going and he's inquiring of you know the hackney coaches there if anyone you know noticed them and saw what direction they went in or were the driver of their coach who would even really want to find Lydia and <laughs> Seriously. Well, not not once they got married, they sure wouldn't. Personae non grata. <laughs> so back to Poirot and Hastings at the Todd's residence in Clapham, where they interview the housemaid, Annie, who has some interesting ideas, doesn't she, Catherine? She has a lot of conspiracy theories about white slavers. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it was a little bit unexpected. I will say that. Chrissy's definitely playing it for laughs. I mean, it's supposed to be really funny that Annie thinks the white slavers took Eliza because she says, as likely as not, she's been shipped to Turkey or one of them eastern places where I've heard they like them fat. 
I mean, it's a thing here. And so we know that Eliza's trunk had been packed and then was sent away. So it seemed like Eliza might have pre-planned this Mm -hmm. because it seemed like everything was done possibly before she disappeared. And there's this entire thing about like, well, she basically would lose a month's wages. So that's really odd that she would do that, that she'd pull a runner. But yeah, she clearly pre-packed her trunk and was off. Yeah, he he very sort of tactfully shoots down the white slavers theory because he's like, well, it's hard to believe that she would have packed her trunk and then sent for her trunk later if she were actually abducted by white slavers. Although Annie does have also a, a pretty amusing theory that if it were white slavers, that the way they almost definitely could have tempted her was to dangle some stewed peaches in front of her nose. Cause she says mad over stewed peaches. She was, I shouldn't wonder if they didn't get her that way. <laughs> and Mr. Todd comes home and is very clearly irked that his wife has hired a private investigator. And Mr. Simpson, who's their paying guest, is of no use. Although, and Hastings notes this, oddly, he worked in the same bank as Mr. Davis, the man who apparently absconded with the 50,000 pounds. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that, you know, we often talk about how Christy lays in something in the beginning of these short stories via the newspaper and laundry lists, but Hastings really does just pick up on it right away. It's not really buried in the story. No. And spoiler, but that doesn't end up being a red herring. It's the bank embezzlement that that ends up being significant. So we we are kind of informed of that before we get to our resolution. So... Poirot is, you know, humming along here on the case. He's still very happily trying to figure out where this Eliza Dunn is and what could be going on. But he is subsequently fired from the case by Mrs. Todd for a mere guinea because her husband clearly talked her out of it. It was it was very obvious that her husband was annoyed by this whole thing. He doesn't think it's important. He probably just wants his wife to hire a new cook and be done with it. He doesn't really care. And Poirot is insulted anew because he's, you know, no one puts Poirot off of a case in that kind of peremptory fashion. So he is not going to take their no as an answer. He is going to place his own advertisement in the papers directed to Eliza Dunn and try to get this missing cook to come out of the ether herself and provide some answers as to what's happening here. And does it work, Catherine? It works because who shows up at Poirot's flat? Eliza Dunn. She saw the advert and she's awfully confused because um, she'd sent a letter to Mrs. Todd. Obviously, that was not received. And she proceeds to tell Poirot and Hastings about how she'd been approached on the street by a solicitor who told her that her late aunt's dear Australian friend had left her a bequest of a house and a stipend. So 150 pounds for six months, 300 pounds for the year. Um, But it was on the condition that it had to be claimed immediately and also possibly disturbingly, that she could not be a domestic employee. Right. So she, um, and there's been a delay in communication because they were trying to seek her out. So she had to essentially go immediately. Eliza proceeds to panic and write a letter that she gives to this lawyer. That would be the letter that she wrote to Mrs. Todd. So that's done. And then she heads directly off to Carlisle where she finds this adorable cottage. This is part of the legacy that she's been promised. And she's met by solicitors who take her through all of these very nice arrangements. And she subsequently receives her belongings mailed to her, though, not in her trunk because she had a trunk in her lodgings at the Todd's residence, but in paper, her clothes are wrapped in paper very shoddily. You know, if you're expecting mm-hmm. your clothes to arrive in your big, beautiful, spacious trunk and they come arrived wrapped in paper, it's a bit disappointing. And she seems, you know, rather annoyed by that. And she just assumes that this was Mrs. Todd essentially having sour grapes that she left as quickly right. as she did and saying, well, you can leave, but I'm not giving you your trunk. And, you know, you can just have your clothes back in paper. So her trunk never got sent to her, even though we know from 
Annie, the housemaid, that the trunk was taken out of the Todd residence and forwarded when it was called for. So Eliza is as clueless as to the whereabouts of her trunk as anyone in this business, and she seems to have been extremely gullible when it came to this supposed legacy, which neither Poirot nor an astute reader believes for a second. So Poirot and Hastings um, end up having to go back to Clapham, and also they have to send a note to Inspector Jap, which this is also funny because Poirot refuses to do this originally because he was embarrassed about taking on this case. So they were making a deliberate point about like, yeah, let's just never tell Inspector Jap that this is happening. Right. But now, now they have to go back. And who is Poirot looking for going back to Clapham? It might be that paying guest. Mr. Simpson. Mr. Simpson. So Hastings, his morning paper reading is not without merit. And I think we can just switch into the world as it actually is because there are really only a few clues. We can kind of figure out what's going on immediately. But what's the first clue, Kepper? Well, the first clue we already alluded to, which is that whenever there are items from a newspaper reprinted in a Christie story, especially a Christie short story, especially, especially an early Christie Poirot short story, and it's Hastings who's reading it after breakfast as Poirot was listening, it's going to be significant. It's not random. So we know that one of those items is important to, to the solving of the case. And as I mentioned, Hastings even pinpoints which one it is. It's that bank embezzlement. So somehow, given that Mr. Simpson works at the bank where this embezzlement was committed by a Mr. Davis, there has to be a connection to this missing cook business. And, you know, the obvious connection is Mr. Simpson. So the real mystery is how. And we have another clue, actually, that does speak to the how at least a little bit. Well, right. If somebody mentions... If if Annie, um, the housemaid, mentions a pre-packed trunk and Eliza says, oh, I never received my trunk. I just got these shoddily wrapped packages with my clothing in them. We can kind of make a guess that something nefarious is going on with the trunk. And I have to say the deduction here is pretty easy because if you have a pretty large steamer trunk, what might fit in it? pretty large steamer trunk, Kemper. I think a body <laughs> might actually yeah. fit in a trunk. Yes. yes. I'm reminded of the trunk murderer that was referenced in one of Christie's novels. And when we were covering whatever novel that was, I made the mistake of assuming that that referred to people being stuffed in what people in the UK would call the boot I know. I've, I've always found it funny that you thought that because I, my assumption, I think it's probably because when I grew up, we actually had a bunch of antique steamer trunks um, in the house. Mm -hmm. So like, I know exactly how big a steamer trunk is. Right. Well, it's not about the size, but we obviously in the U.S. call, when we refer to trunks, we're generally talking about the back or front mm. compartment of a car, um, i.e. the boot of a car. Um, unless you live in the Brobeck household. Unless you live in the Brobeck household, apparently. But yes, yeah, so the trunk murderer clearly was able to stuff some bodies into trunks. It's been done before. It could be done again. And uh, yeah, I think we would do well as astute readers to think about that. That's all we have. Although I think even with, with those two little clues, we could probably get to what might be happening here. But let's just spell it out as we get to our resolution. <laughs> Mr. Simpson is behind the embezzlement scheme, not Mr. <laughs> Davis, because Mr. Davis is, of course, dead and his body is stuffed into Eliza Dunn's trunk. And Mr. Simpson, of course, just used his poor colleague as the front so that he could, you know, would buy him time and he would not be the one that anyone was looking to when they were trying to figure out who had actually engaged in this embezzlement. You know, we don't really get any more details than that. I still would imagine that, that that's a little tricky to pull off, but sure, 
I believe it on the surface level at which it is presented right. in this short story. The issue, though, of course, is that he needed a convenient place to store the body. That's often the hardest part about murdering someone, isn't it? That you have to somehow get rid of a body or not be associated with a dead body. So he decided to use the cook's trunk because she had an old trunk. Because, of course, as is brought up within the story, well, why didn't he just buy a new trunk? if he needed to stuff a body in a trunk. And the answer that's given, I suppose, is believable enough, which is he needed a trunk that looked respectable and that also wouldn't attract any attention. And a brand spanking new trunk is not the kind of trunk in which you want to hide a dead body. You really want an an old, battered trunk that no one's going to look twice at. Right. And I mean, I suppose you could also ask, how did he arrange the entire letting of the house in Carlisle but again he embezzled 50,000 pounds so you know he went to some expense right to pull off the ruse with Eliza because he had to actually give her the money for the legacy the quote-unquote legacy that she was getting so he gave her a lump sum there then he had to actually lease the house for a number of months so but that was you know an expenditure in the hundreds of pounds for a 50,000 pound embezzlement so it's quite believable that he would have done that yeah absolutely I mean Poirot at some point says to Eliza which is very sad for her he says, you know, I hope you don't lose your cooking skills. Yeah. She's going to have to go back to domestic service rather soon. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that trunk ends up going to Glasgow and it's just going to be basically like thrown into storage there because it's not going to get picked up. I mean, presumably somebody would very quickly realize the smell This is all happening within the days after the murder. I had the same thought that eventually someone's going to notice the smell. By the time the body starts smelling, he'll be off into another country, unreachable, untraceable. And that's all he needs. He just has to buy himself time. Right. That's exactly it. And then even then, the trunk is sent from Eliza, who's apparently done a runner. So she's going to be the one who's suspicious. Right. If anything, she'd be the one who was implicated some way. So you know what? Maybe getting forced back into domestic service is not the worst thing that could have happened to her. She could have very well found herself serving a life sentence for murder. Anyway, Poirot, because finally he did contact Inspector Jap, they sound the alarms and he's caught. Mr. Simpson's caught. The end. is brought to you by Best Fiends. Catherine, we are, fingers crossed, turning a corner on this difficult time that we find ourselves in. Spring is on its way in the not-too-distant future. Things are, dare I say, looking up. And I was wondering how you plan on celebrating all these changes with your great love, Howie the Lizard. You know, Kemper, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And so Howie and I, we're going to kill some slugs, explode some boxes for additional rewards, and most importantly, we're going to solve some puzzles. Lots of puzzles. And is there really any better way to celebrate good times with those we love than by solving puzzles? Not for this girl, or Howie the Lizard. Or this guy either. We've said it before, but it bears repeating that Best Fiends is the perfect game for puzzle-minded folk such as you, our dear listeners. So do yourself a favor and check it out today. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. The end. And, you know, the story, though, does end on what for these stories is a typical light and jocular note, which is that uh, we find out that Mrs. Todd's check for a guinea was never cashed. Poirot has it framed and hung on the wall of his sitting room. I like it. 
And this is what he says to close out the story. It is to me a little reminder, Hastings, never to despise the trivial, the undignified, a disappearing domestic at one end, a cold-blooded murder at the other. To me, one of the most interesting of my cases. And I'm actually also quite pleased to be able to note that there is an extra line that was written into the story when it appeared in the sketch, which was excised from the story when it was collected into the various book forms that it was collected into over the, over the years. Um, I'm getting this information actually from, but of course, our good friend Mark Aldridge in his new book, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, where he has all sorts of fun facts, not only about adaptations, but of course about the text themselves. And the extra line in the sketch was as follows. But for Poirot and his amazing powers of reasoning, a particularly cold-blooded murder would have escaped scot-free. You know, not really necessary. I think it's a cleaner, snappier ending without that, but perhaps that seems a little bit more um, newspapery, you know? Yeah, and I think it makes a nice transition. One of the nice things about this story is how many of the actual lines from it are preserved in the adaptation. They really are. Yeah. So we mentioned this when we announced in our last episode that we were covering this story. But I think for a lot of listeners, what is significant about this story is that it is the very first episode Mm -hmm. of the David Suchet series, Agatha Christie's Poirot. So I think first off, it's interesting to me that they chose such an outlier of a story as their first episode. I actually think it's an excellent choice for a first episode. Completely agreed. But it, Louis should acknowledge it's an outlier. I mean, Poirot is taking on a case with a, a solidly middle class, perhaps even almost lower middle class client about a missing domestic. That is not often what he does. It's a little bit the counterpart to that Miss Marple short story in The 13 Problems, Death by Drowning, where she looks mm-hmm. into a publican's daughter who was knocked up and seemingly killed herself by jumping into a river. It's like very, you know, not what Miss Marple normally does, but Christy does occasionally have, you know, her detectives. <laughs> I really, I really like that story, by the way. I do too. I, I, I appreciate them for how they stand out and for the fact that she's actually has them delving into problems that are afflicting the lower classes. And, you know, there's perhaps a certain bit of, of patronizing air that the detective slash maybe even Christy has as she's telling the stories. But for the most part, they're top-notch mysteries and very, quote-unquote, fun, you know, in the way her murder mysteries always are. And I think they really they really round out the collection. So, Well, um, I, think, um, I think that, yeah, for sure that in the actual just stories. And as far as the first episode goes, I mean, it's just planting so many of the Christie themes really well. My favorite scene in this, which we can get to later, possibly, is that Poirot gets thwarted and he goes around the side of the house and he talks to Annie. Mm-hmm. That's far and away my favorite scene in this episode because he's, yes, he's using the housemaid, but at the same time, he's like very generous to her. And that is consistently the case across the stories and the novels is that Poirot, let me again reiterate, never underestimates the help. And everything about it is just like very neatly accomplished. In this episode, it's a really, really good place to start. It is. We should mention that it first aired all the way back on the 8th of January, 1989, over 30 years ago. Yikes. The producer was Brian Eastman. The director was Edward Bennett. And the writer was, of course, Clive Exton, who really established the tone and the feel of the series and wrote so many of these scripts. We mentioned when we started talking about the text alone that that moment in which Poirot turns around and rather than continuing to berate this woman, how dare you come to me with such a trivial problem? 
problem realizes, oh, actually for you, this is important and I'm going to embrace this wholeheartedly. That's right there in the text. And it's such a likable moment. And I think Mm -hmm. that too is why this is an excellent choice for a first episode, because that's all happening in the very first scene, which is not the very first scene of the episode, but the very first scene in which we meet Poirot, we get all that Christy wrote in that scene on the screen. I'll tell you what I want you to do for me. I want you to find my cook. I fear you are making a mistake, madame. Hercule Poirot is a private detective. I know that. Haven't I just told you I want you to find my cook for me? Walked out of the house on Wednesday without so much as a by your leave and never came back. I am sorry, madame, but I do not touch that particular kind of business. I wish you good day. So that's it, is it? Too proud, eh? Only deal with government secrets and countess's jewels. Well, let me tell you, Mr. High and Mighty Poirot, a good cook's a good cook. And when you lose one, it's as much to you as pearls are to some fine lady. <laughs> Madame, you are in the right and I am in the wrong. Your remarks are just and intelligent. This case would be a novelty, Hastings. Never before have we hunted a missing domestic. Truly, here is the problem of national importance. And, you know, we get who Poirot is. We get that there are kind of layers to him. He's not just a ridiculous little twit by any means. And from the get-go, and this was always, you know, David Suchet talks about this so much in his book Poirot and Me, but when he talked about, you know, what he was going to do with the character with Rosalind, with Agatha Christie's daughter, she said, we can never be laughing at Poirot. I don't want him to be a figure of fun. And even though... David Suchet brings, you know, so much comedy and ludicrousness to the character, just as, you know, Christy imbues the character with on the page. He's never laughing at him. It's the show is never at Poirot's expense. And all of that is just right there from the get go. And not only with with David Suchet's Poirot, but with Hugh Frazier's Hastings and Pauline Moran's Miss Lemon and Philip Jackson's Inspector Jap. They are all in this episode. They are all more or less exactly who the characters are both from an emotional and physical standpoint. You know, the only, I think, Poirot's mustache feels like it still needed a little bit more work to get to where it would be in those early seasons. It ended up changing again after that, but it felt a little rough. And I noticed that Pauline Moran's finger curls were not very well defined. They were not where they eventually got to. I know, but you know whose finger curls were very well defined? Mrs. Todd. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Mrs. Todd was good, too. The actress who played Mrs. Todd, I thought was genuinely funny how she would do this sort of like squinting smile as she was as she was saying things or she was just sort of like, "Mm, aren't I just so delightful? She was hateful, but in a really funny way. And that, too, it's like all of the, you know, the character actors who appear on this show and many of them just in one episode, they always bring something to it as well because the show is so well directed. The production design is there. It is lavish from the get go. We have on location shots in Clapham and then also up in I believe it's actually the the Lake District where they shot you know when Poirot and Hastings go to find Eliza Dunn in her cottage and that's just gorgeous as they're traipsing about there and we have Poirot you know stepping in cow manure in his shoes and Hastings and Poirot actually have a delightful little city mouse country mouse spat where they're arguing about the merits of the city versus the country which I, right. I found adorable Look at that, Poirot. Look at that view. Yes, well, views are very nice, Hastings. But they should be painted for us so that we may study them in the warmth and comfort of our own homes. That is why we pay the artist for exposing himself to these conditions on our behalf. What do you mean, conditions? It's a wonderful day. Just fill your lungs with that air. No, my poor friend. This sort of air is intended for birds and little furry things. The lungs of Hercule Poirot demand something more substantial. The good air of the town. It's just all being expertly established. And that's probably the other reason why this story was such a good choice for the first episode, because it's not overwhelming. It's a perfect story to fill out 50 minutes, and they don't really even do that much more invention. We have a little bit of an action 
esque sequence at the end, but there's no Lori chasing or backing up in a country lane or anything like that. They just really do the story full justice and have some breathing room to establish the characters and have fun, especially with those four characters, the family, right? Who will carry us through those early seasons. Yeah, and it's a good it's a good introduction because like never really do we get introduction of Inspector Jap, particularly in the texts. But yeah. here, you know, that you, you can tell that he knows who Paro, he and Paro know who each other are, obviously. But there's a very, very well-acted moment where Jap is interviewing um, Mr. Simpson in the bank. Mm-hmm. And Paro comes down the steps and Mr. Simpson sees him and kind of freaks out to Jap. And then Paro walks aside and he knows Jap's behind him. Mm-hmm. And there's a really, really, really good Suchet moment where you see Suchet's face as Poirot being like, oh, God. Okay. Yeah, because he's embarrassed. Yes, he's embarrassed. And so he takes breath and then he turns around and he's charming to Jap. Ah, my dear Chief Inspector Jap. After the reward, eh, Poirot? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I am engaged on quite a different case. And what would this different case be, then? Ah, well, now, there is such a thing as client confidentiality, Chief Inspector. Let me just say that this case I am engaged on is of national importance. Well, I'm glad to hear it, Poirot. Someone was trying to tell me you'd gone into the missing domestics business. No, no, I said. Not Poirot, I said. Hard times or not, he wouldn't fall that far. (laughs) It's a really, really nice moment. Yeah, there's also a really funny moment. So this is an example of in the episode, you know, they're taking dialogue and jokes straight from the text. They they totally talk about stewed peaches with Annie. And, mm-hmm. you know, Annie says the same thing about how she was mad about stewed peaches. But what the adaptation takes a little further is that it's obvious that Hastings thinks that white slavers is a viable option. He's completely taken in by Annie's theory. And there's this really funny look. It's a look of concern that Poirot gives Hastings at the end of that whole conversation about white slavers and and the stewed peaches with Annie, where he's like, oh my God, like how clueless are you? This is really concerning. It's just this sort of like, yikes look. And it's so funny. And it just immediately establishes their dynamic, that sort of like reverse Jeeves and Worcester thing, right? Where uh, Hugh Fraser is the Worcester to David Suchet's Jeeves. Tell me now, Annie. What was the very last thing Eliza said to you before she went out? She said, if there's any stewed peaches left over from the dining room, we'll have them for supper. And a bit of bacon and fried potatoes. Mad over stewed peaches she was. I shouldn't wonder if that wasn't the way they got her. Got her? The white slivers. Ah, the stewed peaches. I just, I really, really love that. And it's funny that you mentioned to the moment later with Annie and Poirot as being so great because I, what I loved most about it is at the very end. Very well, Annie. Thank you. Au revoir. Au revoir, sir. (laughs) Excellent. She giggles because she's speaking French and Poirot totally plays along and he says, oh, excellent. And he's so charming to her and he's so. I know. Gosh darn likable. I'm just like, I just want to squeeze your cheeks or hug you or something. I just, I love him. He he would not like that. (laughs) I know he wouldn't. I know he would hate that, but he's just too much adorableness. And what I really have to mention is in that the first scene in which we see Poirot, the very first shot that we get of him is a full body pan from toe to tip 
the camera just starts on his spats and slowly, this is the first time we're seeing him. I couldn't believe this as I was watching it slowly glides up his legs and he brushes a little bit of lint off of his trousers and it goes up his suit. And then we see his face there. I actually made a gif of this. I was very proud of myself because I am at this point a bit old fashioned when it comes to technology and social media, but I totally figured out how to make a gif as I was playing this episode via birth box and I tweeted it out for our followers on Twitter so if you haven't seen it yet feel free to check it out on at all about the dame it's quite a sight to behold but funnily enough David Suchet actually talks about that moment in his book Poirot and me because not only is it the first moment in the series uh, that we see Poirot but this was also the first moment of Poirot that they in fact filmed and I love this because we you know we talked about the final moments of the Suchet series in uh, Dead Man's Folly, right? Which was the last right. uh, episode that they shot and how sad it was. And, you know, he was very emotional and he, he was crying and everyone was emotional. And they had this lovely dinner with Matthew Pritchard right in, in Greenway. But, you know, this is the other end of that. And this is what he says about it. And uh, forgive me, Catherine, but, you know, I seem to be making a habit of slightly long excerpts, but I know that you adore my story times. So I you think know, that... Um, I mean, don't, don't we all, Catherine? <laughs> <laughs> I think that this is this again is is worth the slightly longer excerpt because it just gives a, a good sense of where David Suchet's headspace was when he started filming this series and when he was doing this episode specifically. So it was Sean. Sean is his driver, who he talks about a lot. He was his driver for the entire run of the series. He's like almost as important as David Suchet to the overall Agatha Christie's Poirot series. So it was Sean who ushered me across London on that June morning in 1988, the first day of filming. I sat there feeling more nervous than I'd ever done in my entire career. Am I going to do this right? I asked myself. Will it work? Things did not start well. Shortly after Sean dropped me outside my dressing room at Twickenham, just down the road from the River Thames at Richmond, my rather nervous male dresser arrived with the suit I was supposed to wear for the first day's shooting. It was for a scene in Poirot's flat in Whitehaven Mansions as part of the opening to the short story The Adventure of the Clapham Cook, which told of a missing cook, a mysterious lodger, and the disappearance of 90,000 pounds in foreign banknotes from a bank in the city of London. I suppose they changed the amount. I'd looked at the scene in the car with Sean on my way to the studio and could see it clearly in my mind. One of the things I could see was that Poirot would be dressed in his black patent leather shoes, his spats, striped trousers, and waistcoat as part of his morning suit. But those were not the clothes that arrived with my dresser on that June morning. Instead, I was presented with a distinctly dull, ordinary gray suit. I was horrified. All the fears that had welled up inside during the first costume fittings a few weeks earlier came flooding back, and I sat down on my chair with a bump. I'm sorry, but I am not going to wear that suit, I said quietly. It isn't what Poirot would wear. He would wear his morning suit. But this is what I've been told to give you, David, my dresser told me, the surprise and the nervousness, only too obvious in his voice. Well, I won't be wearing it. I will never forget the look he gave me when I said that. There was despair in his eyes as well as a little confusion. Who was he going to please, the director or me? He was caught in the middle. There was a long pause, and then he backed quietly out of my dressing room with the gray suit over his arm. But I was as determined as I'd ever been that I was going to be true to the Poirot I saw in my mind's eye and heard in my head. In my heart, I knew that there was bound to be some reaction from the director who had clearly decided that was what I should be wearing for the scene, but I wasn't going to be put off. So, after my dresser came back to help me on with the padding I needed to play Poirot, I waited for another costume. I didn't have to wait long. Just a few minutes later, a costume lady arrived, this time carrying a morning suit, complete with striped trousers and waistcoat. My dresser took it from her. Hard word was said, but I was delighted that my views were being listened to. Nevertheless, as I walked onto the set for my first scene, I was still trembling with nerves. For the first shot, the camera was to track up from my feet, taking in my patent leather shoes, my spats, and my striped trousers. I was to flick a speck of lint from them with my hand, and then rising to take in my waistcoat and bow tie before arriving on my face with my fingers stretched upwards into steeple, the cathedral of hands, as I liked to call it. Hastings was suggesting crimes that Poirot might be interested in from the paper, but Poirot carefully rejected all of them before telling Hastings that he had to attend to his wardrobe. It was a, a little vignette of how very particular Poirot was about his clothes. What was really terrifying me, though, was the simple fact that I knew that I had to be exactly right from the very first moment the camera caught sight of me, because once it did, I would never truly be able to change that first impression. 
I was still trembling when the director, the then 38-year-old Edward Bennett, who was to go on to work on many British television series, called Action! But my years in the theater had taught me one thing that helped enormously, the ability to block everything out and concentrate. I knew that if I focused entirely on my Poirot, he would help me conquer my nerves. To my immense relief, the fastidious little detective did exactly that. He saw me through my first day, and my second, and my third, just as he has on every single day ever since. More than anyone, it was Hercule Poirot himself who helped me to bring him to life on that first day at Twickenham. I almost feel emotional about that. (laughs) It's lovely. He really takes the character so seriously. That's the true takeaway from the book, Poirot and Me. He's got lots of fascinating anecdotes and factoids and and little tidbits. I've talked up that book so many times before, and I really do encourage any Uh, super fans of the series to check it out. But I mean, I I think that the other thing that I would say is like, if you watch this and then you, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, they took that hiatus in the late nineties and when they came back, obviously they hit a lot of the big novels and it was significantly darker. But if you lived with Poirot for that long, and if you start here and you work through there, I mean, how would it not be darker? Jeez, like the man has been through a lot. Um, Not just the character of Poirot, but Suchet acting him. I mean, it was so many years of it. Of course, it's going to be darker. How would it not be? And he had to grow too. You really get that sense as well that... The character had to change for Suchet to continue to be invested in him for the quarter century that he was. Well, and I mean, also he had to go somewhere. Lo- well, and you lose the supporting cast. So when they come back from that hiatus later, the supporting cast is pretty much gone. Yeah. So that also is like a loss. So now you have somebody all alone. Yes. And that's interesting and it's poignant. And what I love about that book is that it makes me more appreciative of not only the actorly expertise that David Suchet brought to the character, but the passion and the care that he brings to his performance because it's so key to why the performance just sings as much as it does. And you can see it there. And he actually has another anecdote, which don't worry, Catherine, I won't read out from the book. I may have even referenced it at some point in a previous episode, but during this, uh, the adventure of the Clapham cook, the filming of, of this first episode, he had another major argument with the director. There's a scene actually in the episode when Poirot and Hastings go to Clapham Common after they've been talking with Mrs. Todd and and they have to kind of kill some time essentially before they can interview Mr. Todd coming back from work and he doesn't offer them a drink, which is unforgivable to Hastings, which I thought was really funny. And Hastings is sitting on a bench and Poirot is standing in the scene. It's a short scene when they're on Clapham Common. As originally uh, shot, it was a much longer scene during which Poirot sat down on the bench and David Suchet insisted that if Poirot were to sit on a public bench, he had to lay down a handkerchief first and sit on the handkerchief. And the director basically put his foot down, kind of lost his mind over this and was like, that is ridiculous. We cannot do that. That's just weird and OCD. And David Suchet was like, "Uh uh-huh, like exactly. I just, I know that he would do that. And the funny thing is that the scene got deleted from that episode, but he does do that in subsequent episodes. We've definitely seen David Suchet as Poirot lay a handkerchief down on benches and sit down on it. Like that is something that he did. He brought to the scenes later. And in the book, he just says it was another argument that he did win. I mean, he won it in the moment, although it's kind of the joke. I feel like among writers and directors and producers, especially of TV, where often you have to do multiple takes of things where they're like to the actors, sure, you do it your way. Let's just get it the other way also though just in case and then they just kind of do what they want in post (laughs) which sounds like exactly what happened but it was very important to him that he be heard about that and that he not really back down on these idiosyncrasies of Poirot because he knew that that was key to nailing the character and it's, 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 again, it's, it's just, it's all here in this first episode. It's extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it helps that as Suchet himself said that he was primarily a stage actor, still is primarily a stage actor. I always think it's really funny. He got nominated for a Tony award, gosh, a long time ago at this point, but he was playing Salieri and Amadeus. 
Mm-hmm. And that seems somehow apropos. I don't know why. That just seems somehow like that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too. I was, you know, reading over a little bit the Clapham Cook section of Poirot and Me, and I hadn't read it in a while. And in that section, he talks a lot about working with Pauline Moran and Philip Jackson and Hugh Fraser, and he hadn't worked with any of them before doing this series. And, you know, he talks about the choices that especially Philip Jackson made to essentially be a sort of straight man to Suchet's idiosyncratic Poirot, because that would help balance out, you know, what was happening. And in a way, also kind of highlight those idiosyncrasies that he was choosing to engage in. And it's an interesting point because Hastings and Miss Lemon are both rather ridiculous characters as well. And I think if Philip Jackson were doing something bigger or weirder on this show, it would be too much. And reading that section made me appreciate what an anchoring presence he really is. Because Jap is kind of a ridiculous character as well. And Philip Jackson does take a little bit of a similar approach, which is that he never makes Jap ridiculous. You always get the sense that even though Jap is someone who is never as quick as Poirot and is always going to get bested by Poirot, he gets it. His Jap totally gets it. And that actually does go such a long way to grounding the series. And I've always loved the way that he plays Jap, which is different from the Jap in the text. And apparently, actually, Philip Jackson had read Christie when he was younger, but he very purposely did not read any Christie while he was playing the character because he just wanted to play the character that had been created within the scripts that he was filming. um, You get a little bit of compelling Jap in like I think we talked about like Murder in the Muse before mm-hmm. where like so you get like a few things like that where you get like heavy Jap in them yes those are always kind of fun and I can see how it's pulling from those yes it's I think Jap's a little inconsistent in the text, honestly, I think sometimes she would play up, you know, Hastings and Jap not liking each other or Jap would seem fairly superficial or opportunistic, I think, of Poirot. And he would, you know, rub Hastings, if not Poirot, even the wrong way, and if not the reader, even the wrong way. But Philip Jackson's Jap is consistently, he's he's the best version of Jap that Christie absolutely did create at times on the page. And I think they just made that consistent throughout the series, or at least for as long as Jap appears in the series. Right. And I think that, you know, if you're looking at this, I mean, Hugh Frazier does a tremendous job because he's also just introducing Hastings with a bang. Yes. Hastings is fully realized. Fully realized. In that scene. From the scene where we get the body pan, Hastings is reading the newspaper and reacting to Poirot and just doing everything that Hastings does. Mrs. Todd. Doesn't sound as if she's nationally important. Mind you, I knew a Mrs. Jones once who was master of hounds with the Mid-Rutland. Yes. No, that's all. Funny woman. And is remarkably faithful to the book Hastings, Mm -hmm. frankly. I think Pauline Moran, you know, in this book anyway, he quoted her as saying that part of what she wanted to do was never to flirt with Poirot because Poirot was someone who wasn't really comfortable doing that. So they actually, they're very similar, right? They're both essentially OCD and yeah. they they have similarities and and whereas the relationship with Poirot Hastings Poirot Jap is often the comedy inherent in oil and water you know not really mixing very well but still having affection for each other there is this core of understanding between Pauline Moran's Miss Lemon and Poirot that is in no way founded on romance it's actually founded on respect and that's also extremely refreshing Completely agree. And also, if you think about it, she's having to pretty much come up with a character from scratch because, you know, as much as we hate to say it, there is actually not very much Miss Lemon in the books. Whenever she talks about Miss Lemon, it's usually just to talk about how ugly she is, it seems. I know, just so mean. But yeah, we don't we don't get a lot of Miss Lemon in the actual Christie text. So what she's having to do is they're having to create 
a character almost from scratch. Yeah, and she's the only character who doesn't actually appear in the text, right? Because they they have a landlady that's showing in the client mm-hmm. at the beginning. Again, very Sherlock Holmes. I'm like, is that Mrs. Hudson? So they have to fabricate Miss Lemon, but all the other three are certainly in there to a certain extent anyway. I think that for a first episode, it just does a really good job of setting everything right. Well, and my other major point I wanted to make about this episode that I found fascinating when I was watching it, you know, having covered as much Christie as we've covered at this point, is that not only did they choose a very simple short story, but the way that the short story mystery is presented in this episode is overly simplistic because I made a little condition when I was talking about the scene in which Poirot was first introduced. That's not the first scene of the episode. The first scene of the episode is us seeing Mr. Simpson, the paying guest, right? The lodger tying up this trunk in his room. Mm -hmm. And clearly we can get from the music cue that something bad is going on here. And this is a bad guy. And then just in case that's not completely clear, the next time that we see Mr. Simpson again when Poirot and Hastings go up to his room. The music comes on again and it's like, oh, here's the baddie. And then he is the baddie. It's not a red herring. The mystery is actually spelled out way more obviously than it would be in pretty much every future episode. And again, I think it's because this episode's working overtime on the character since obviously it's the first episode and you almost don't notice that they're doing that with the mystery because the characters are so engaging and the mystery is still there. So I think it was it's just an incredibly clever way of structuring this first episode so that you can really let it have the room that it requires to establish these characters. Just really, really impressive. And I think shows a lot of foresight in terms of even at that point, they were only doing 10 episodes, right? I mean, they they couldn't have known that they were going to do every single Poirot story ever written. But, you know, they're just really giving the character the room to come to life. And I think that speaks to the longevity that they were eventually able to achieve with the series. Yeah, absolutely. I really, really enjoyed watching it and was honestly very impressed not just by how well it holds up but by how well it sets everything up yeah i mean they did add a little extra clue about bolivar oh i I like i liked that though I did too. No, I did. Which is also in keeping with what this series would often do because they would add little clues that were usually pretty seamless. The person at the train station where the trunk is being kept, who's very snarky with Hastings. I uh, know. Really, really snarky. Yeah. He's the clerk who's watching over the storage area of the train station. But he remembers that whoever brought the trunk in had banknotes when they were paying in British pounds. He also saw banknotes in their wallet. He says the banknotes have Bolivia written on them. So he must've been going to Bolivia and they're like, Oh, so okay. They so assume, then they're... they assume that he's going to go to Buenos Aires. And then it's only when they're at the port. Poirot, where are we going? The queen of heaven sails for Caracas tonight. I remember it from the time. Yes, but Caracas isn't in Bolivia, is it? What the fuck I saw on the banknote was not Bolivia. What was it then? It was Bolivar. And the Bolivar is the unit of currency in Venezuela. Our friend is on his way to Venezuela. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's one of those like, oh, I've been such a fool. And but it's it, it's very much in keeping with the story. And it's a slight yeah, filling. Good. Out. I, I, I really like it. Yeah. And then we get that very small, modest action sequence in which, you know, they're hurrying to the real boat and they say, and, you know, it's a precursor of action sequences to come. Boy, would those get a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah. Again, there's no lorry chase in this one. Right. And Poirot frames the check, just as he does in the original. No, 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 Miss Lemon, to the left. At least one centimeter to the left. That's better. Voila. Is there nothing to which Hercule Poirot cannot turn his finger? Hand. Pay to Hercule Poirot the sum of one guinea only, Ernest Todd. It is to me, Hastings, a little reminder... Never to despise the trivial, eh? but the undignified. A disappearing domestic at one end, a cold-blooded murder at the other. 
I think it's been a while, actually, since we've just been able to discuss how much we love <laughs> the David Suchet series. So I'm very happy that we had the excuse to do so in this episode. I, I You know what? I could not have been happier. Well, that is the adventure of the Clapham Cook. We are so excited for our next episode because it's a very special interview episode in which we sat down recently, over Zoom of course, with Martin Edwards, the author of The Golden Age of Murder, a fascinating encyclopedic non-fictional account of the many authors of The Golden Age of Detective Fiction. Martin is quite literally one of the most knowledgeable people on this earth when it comes to Christie and her contemporaries, especially in the earlier decades of her career. He's also a mystery writer in his own right, the current president of the Detection Club, and a huge Christie fan. So I like to think of our conversation with him as Christie Plus. You're all going to love it. And then in the episode after that, we'll be covering a novel. It is going to be a Miss Marple novel. <gasps> Catherine, we are covering The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side, or The Mirror Cracked, if you are reading a U.S. version of the book. Apparently, we couldn't handle the full title. It was too much. Our attention spans just couldn't handle it. I mean, nobody else <laughs> probably knew the Lady of Shalott. Is that what we're also saying? That's probably also went into their thinking there. I really, really cannot wait for that one. I very much remember reading that one when I was younger. Me too. Yeah. In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. You can always find more content from us on our Patreon site. We are over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We just uh, dropped an episode all about Dracula by Bram Stoker. We're going to be talking about Dracula adaptations. Back it's not go. just Agatha Christie, folks. We do we do more on the Patreon. So It's always about mystery, though. It is. We read Dracula through the lens of mystery fiction. So we were reading Dracula as a can detective you, um, Can you novel. perhaps give our listeners a taste of your Count from Sesame Street version of Dracula? <laughs> One, two, three. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, if you head over to the Patreon, you get to hear Kemper do that a bunch of times in an attempt at a Transylvanian <laughs> accent. Transylvania. (laughs) Boy. (laughs) Well, I think we just lost some patrons. And if you would instead like to email us, you can do so at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. Please take a moment to rate and review us if you haven't already. It helps others find the podcast. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.